Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Ah, Herd Tell Show, it's Andrew Donaldson. It is a Monday, August the 29th, year of our Lord, 2022. First day of school around these parts, wherever you are across the street or around the world. We hope you're well. Hope you had a great weekend. Hope you're ready for another great week of giving us one hour a day, every weekday, turning down the noise of the news cycle. Hour a day keeps the caterwauling away. That's what we try to do real hard here, bring you stories that matter. Um, today on the program, we're going to talk a little bit about ifs and buts, because we're already starting a lot of ifs and buts of what's going to happen in the midterm, and by extension, what might happen in the 2024 election. And as my old chief used to tell me, two, more than two ifs isn't a plan, it's a prayer. We'll get into that in just a little bit. Also, to end the program, we always do something uplifting. This guy's very uplifting. He's actually climbing a mountain after a brain injury, something I know a little bit about. It's not fun recovering over it. And this guy doing adventure sports like tough motor races, 10Ks, and charity raising to go climb high mountains, more power to him. We'll bring you that great story to end the program. Great guest on the program today. We're going to go overseas. We've talked a lot on this program about Sri Lanka. I think we're talking about it more than just about any program of our kind that I've seen anywhere because it's an important topic. That country has collapsed. It's a failed state at this point. A lot of crossroads of geopolitics. But what started a lot of this was their agricultural policy, what they call organic farming. And this isn't organic farming like the label you see at the grocery store where you try to get things that are nice and clean and more natural and less pesticides. I get all that. That's all a fine thing. Over there, though, they started pushing organic farming and it was pushed by people outside the country and it devastated the crops and it almost completely decimated the farming industry. Torben Hobe from over in Germany is going to join us. Young Voices contributor. Great in-depth conversation. He is a biologist by trade. He's going to get into the nitty gritty of this. What happens when you don't let a country use pesticides? What happens when you don't let a country use modern farming technology to harvest crops? The yield goes way down. And in a country like Sri Lanka, where you've got poverty and a lot of economic developmental issues, people starve quick. It has a body count to it. This isn't theory. This is something that's killing people. Torben Holbe on the program today. We're going to go real in-depth on Sri Lanka that started this, and then the political powers that be like China and others who came in, swept in, and made it even, even worse. We've been going to talk about Sri Lanka. We're going to talk about it a little bit more today because it's something you better learn because it's coming to other parts of the world very, very soon. But first, um, I want to talk about the midterm elections for just a second. We've got a couple different guests this week. We're going to talk about the midterm elections. We're going to talk about uh, what the Democratic Party has. And this is pretty good branding. They, they came up with a good one here. They've called it the five to flip, the five Senate races they think they can win to take back the Senate. Now, one of those is in Ohio. Now, Ohio has trended redder and redder. 
uh, Donald Trump won it handily both of his elections. Uh, not running away with it, but it is a red state. I don't think we can really call it a swing state anymore. But Tim Ryan, co- longtime congressman there, is running for the Senate seat there. Um, and he was probably not a favorite to win this race. But there's been a couple things developed. One is uh, the GOP prospects across the board have kind of waned a little bit. But number two is J.D. Vance is his opponent. Now, I'm not just saying this because full bias is on the table. I can't stand J.D. Vance. I hate his stupid book. He's a duplicitous hypocrite, and I can't stand the man personally, professionally, or his political brand in any way, shape, or form. Now that I laid my biases on the table, I can still tell you whether or not he's a good candidate. So this isn't me not liking J.D. Vance telling you this. I have sourced this with multiple people over the last few weeks who know what they are doing. Multiple people have reached out to him from the right to try to help his campaign. It's flagging. They don't know what they're doing, and they are making a hash of it. And I've talked to multiple people who are like, yeah, we've tried to help him, and they told us to saw it off and weren't real nice about it. So now Mitch McConnell and his political action committee is steering tens of millions of dollars into Ohio to try to bail out J.D. Vance in a seat that should have been a layup, especially in the current environment. But it's not. Now, that's one part of this story. The other part of this story is Tim Ryan is running a very moderately paced campaign. He's talking to normal people about normal things. He's playing down his Democratic record and some of the things that are more to the left. And he's trying to run the only race he can run if he actually hopes to win. Now, this has upset some of our progressive friends. I want to give you something off of Twitter here because it is instructional to something that we've seen elsewhere. We've seen it with Joe Biden. You're going to see it with Kristen Sinema when she comes up and gets primaried from the left. Some of our progressive friends on the left cannot stand it when some folks in their own party are a little bit more moderate. So Tim Ryan was on Dana Bash. Now, as you know, I do not watch the Sunday programs. I have sworn off them. It's a personal health decision that has worked out really, really well to me. Go to church, go to the farmer's market. I do all kinds of fun things on Sunday morning. Watch a little uh, Premier League, get ready for NFL. Now that it's going to be starting in a few weeks. I don't watch the Sunday shows purposefully. It's just a remix of whatever happened. Nothing important happens. But I grabbed this off Twitter because Tim Ryan was on with Dana Bash. And he criticized Joe Biden's Uh, forgiveness of student loan debt. Now, we've talked about this on the program already. We'll talk about that some other time. You can have your opinion on that. He's came out against it because he's in a tight Senate race. And this is not playing well in Ohio because he's not a dumb man. They've got the polling. They've decided to go against it. So now, if you go in the replies to this, and I'll link to this over and over again, it's like, I don't know if I can vote for Tim Ryan. He may be another Joe Manchin or he may be another Kristen Sinema. Can we have some grown folk talk? Please sit down and listen to me for just a second. I'm going to explain politics in America to you real fast. If you do not have Joe Manchin in the Democratic Party, who is the only Democrat that could win a statewide race in the state of West Virginia, you do not have Democratic control of the U.S. Senate right now. Does everybody got that or do we need to write it down on a graphic? You can hate Joe Manchin all you want to. You can call him whatever names you want to. You can hate his policy. But if you are a Democrat or a progressive, if he is not there and he is not who he is, You do not have the U.S. Senate right now. You do not have any of the accomplishments that Joe Biden has pushed through that Senate in the last two years. None of that happens without Joe Manchin winning a race that no other Democrat would have a prayer of even getting close to. You've ran a progressive to the last two cycles, one against Joe Manchin himself and the other against the other senator in West Virginia. And that progressive person lost by over 40 points both times. Get over yourself. You either want a majority or you don't. 
Now, that's not my tribe and it's not my party. Y'all can do what you want. I'm just going to give you some free advice because this is going to come up over and over again in states that are purple, in swing states, in states that are swinging in which ways they go. And you're going to do it as we talked with our friend Eric Garcia on the Hertel podcast this weekend. Make sure you go listen to it. We go in depth on this. They're going to do this with Kristen Cinema. If you've got a purple state and you run a hardcore progressive, you're probably going to lose. And you may lose to somebody you really don't want to lose to, especially in a state like Arizona, where the GOP are putting up some, frankly, unfit for office people. Do you want to win or do you not want to win? Do you want a majority or do you not want a majority? Because this kind of nonsense, this kind of purity test, you're not going to get a majority. Now, the Democrats have a good look with their five to flip. That's good branding. And they're right. They're going to have a good chance to get those five seats. It's going to depend on a couple of things. And one of it is they need all of their own Democratic base to come out and rally behind these candidates. And if you start doing nonsense like that, my progressive friends, you may shoot yourself in the foot and you might win, end up with the Republican Party back in charge of the U.S. Senate. So I know it's fun to say things on Twitter, but maybe you should plan ahead more than one cycle. And our Republican friends are very guilty of this as well. You might want to plan ahead a little bit. Because you're not going to like where it ends up if you've only got people like you. Because that crowd that's just like you is way too small to do things that matter, like have a majority in the U.S. Senate. Check yourself, listen, pay attention to what's really going on before you start raking people over the coals for not being ideologically pure. You either win or you don't. And that kind of attitude, you won't. More hard tell right after this. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, let's go back overseas, going to Germany, a country I love dearly. Got to live there two different times, close to my heart, and a new contributor from Young Voices. Very excited to talk to him, Torben Albi. Halby. See, I messed it up and I was even practicing it despite my German. My uh, my Sprechensy Deutsch is not what it should be, my friend, but I'm glad to have you on the program. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you, sir. Uh, you were writing about Sri Lanka before we get into the details for it, because we've been covering it for our audience because it crosses a whole lot of streams with geopolitics, um, economic things, uh, foreign policy stuff. What got you into looking into Sri Lanka? Because I know while we've been covering it, what got you interested in it that you started digging into it yourself? Well, to be honest, I never had much interest in Sri Lanka except for, well, I am generally following politics around the world, uh, but I had no special interest in Sri Lanka, but I, am a bi but I am a biologist, you know. Of course, I followed the news about the current crisis in Sri Lanka, and then I heard that organic farming was related to it, um, because 
there was a ban on organic farming in April of 2021, which contributed to the whole crisis. As a politically interested biologist, I have, well, I like to criticize organic farming, uh, not as a luxury, but I criticize the idea that it would be able to feed mankind, basically. And I, I admire science and I, I, I admire the, well, the progress that has been made in food production. If you consider artificial fertilizers and pesticides, and I, I think those are, well, some of the best inventions in the history of mankind. And then you have these people, these organic farming universalists, so to speak, who just want to get rid of that for ideological reasons. And uh, that really bothers me. Now, you say you're a biologist. People are going to like, well, what's that got to do with politics? Well, it has quite a bit to do with it, but let's get the nomenclature right. Because when you see organic, people think organic, like the, the label they see at the supermarket, something is organic. Organic farming in and of itself isn't new because farmers have always, you know, they raise their livestock. Then they use the manure for the livestock to fertilize their field. That, that kind of organic stuff has been going on for centuries. That's all healthy stuff. When you're talking organic farming in a bad sense when it comes to things like Sri Lanka, though, this is a new use of the word organic, isn't it, where they're trying to just strip away any kind of advancements in technology. Just walk us through the nomenclature as a biologist for a minute, what you mean by this kind of organic. Yes, you're right. Uh, traditional farming was organic. People had no choice, basically. They would farm very ineffectively, backbreaking labor, without machines, uh, without artificial fertilizer. Well, this kind of gradually started to change. For example, uh, people started to use guano. I don't know how it's pronounced in English. It's like the, it's like bird shit basically, yeah. and was like a, a very effective fertilizer. For example, during the colonial age that it was discovered and from for most of the industrial age it was used to 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 fertilize fields there were even wars about some islands which contain a lot of that but then um there was a german chemist fritz haber developed a, an amazing uh, method to get nitrogen out of the air as you know nitrogen is the main constituent of air but it's Molecular, ni molecular nitrogen, N2, which is not very reactive. And then he, he figured out a method to, to combine it with hydrogen to um, produce uh, ammonium in the end, which you can use to fertilize. And this changed everything. And well, it helped to even sustain the, the population in the world that we have today. And of course, the other important development were pesticides. Before pesticides, you would have farmers used to do it by hand, but eventually you would have machine, machines to do it. Pesticides kind of do away with that need to put that much labor into getting rid of all those harmful other plants which would compete with your food plants. Yeah, and basically what they did was when you can fertilize and you cut down on pesticides, which cuts down, you're increasing the yield exponentially. People can grow a lot more crops and they can do it more sustainably and they can get more. They're going to know what they're going to get out of each crop, that sort of thing. So fast forward to Sri Lanka. The government in Sri Lanka in 2021 starts cracking down on organic farming. Now, this is a country that's already impoverished to start with. 
But when they started to crack down on this organic farming, and again, not natural farming or cyclical farming, we call it in English. I don't know what they call it in Europe, but uh, I can I can smell the smell right now driving through the German countryside. They still organically fertilize in a lot of places. Um, in Sri Lanka, the government started intervening and pushing for this new organic farming, they called it, where they didn't want the fertilizer and they didn't want the pesticide. What happened in Sri Lanka that started a lot of the tragedy that we're seeing now? Well, in Sri Lanka, they decided to do basically an overnight ban of for, for the import of inorganic fertilizer as well as synthetic pesticides like glyphosate. So it was just banned, you know, so people couldn't import it anymore. And for their farming, they had relied on that. This just destroyed farming and uh, it had an effect on rice farming, which is like the main food they grow there. But it also had an effect on tea farming, which they normally export and which really contributes to the trade balance of, of Sri Lanka because it's an ex important uh, and expensive good that they export. So they, at the same time, um, reduce their ability to export, which uh, uh, plunge a lot of people into, into poverty. And they also were not able to grow enough food for their own population anymore, which they then had to try and import. And uh, you have to remember that at that time, they, they already were in a currency crisis. So the currency was already weak. They already had few uh, foreign, foreign reserve uh, currency. So and now all of a sudden, their exports died down and they had to import a lot of food, which really added to the crisis overall. So not only people had a food shortage and uh, couldn't really farm anymore, but it really spiraled out of control into other areas of the economy because of the whole foreign exchange problem. Because Sri Lanka, as we've been covering, they they are down to almost no foreign currency reserves. This is an island nation. So when you have to start importing and exporting, that's more fuel. That's more effort. Um, the food shortage problem, of course, rises prices on everything else. The fuel shortage means you can't make food. When you can't produce your own food in a country, especially an isolated country, an island country that's already impoverished, that's a domino that is just basically the worst possible thing to have happen to an economy, especially one that was already under stress, as you pointed out. Exactly. And before before that ban, they could produce all the foods they needed, at least when it comes to rice. Of course, they would have imported other foods to some degree, but rice, which was the main food for them, they were uh, self-sufficient on that as long as they still had fertilizer, as long as they still had uh, uh, real pesticides. Um, and ironically, the whole scheme of just banning the import of these things was supposed to save the, the currency and it was supposed to save the, you know, the foreign reserves, the foreign currency reserves, because, well, some, someone looked at 
the the balance and saw that each year they ex sorry they import a lot of fertilizer and they import a lot of pesticides and then well they thought let's just ban it so we no longer have to import all that stuff and we will no longer have to well pay for it and lose our remaining foreign currency but of course that's not how it works because in the end it costs them much more you know they were no longer importing it but then they couldn't grow enough food and they couldn't grow enough tea to export. So it was a, a bad decision for the, the, the balance overall. Yeah, Torben Holby joining us. And the thing about this is we know that the the, the current government, well, the now ex-government, because they've had to flee, the government in Sri Lanka had a lot of issues. They had some nepotism, they had incompetence, they had corruption. But the international community, there was a lot of cheerleading for this rule when it first came into place, wasn't it? Yes. If we talk about organic organic farming, and I don't mean organic farming in the sense that you know some some wealthy people just buy it as a luxury. This is well, this is just a market, I would say. I'm not talking about organic farming as a universal idea where people want to turn all farming all farming organic. Um, and there are some scholars and activists around the world, many in the West, but also in other countries who, well, they think it would be a really good idea to just uh, scrap conventional farming entirely. And they're lobbying for this in a different different ways. In the West, politics is, is, is quite complex and a lot of interest groups have some interaction. So you couldn't just ban organic farming overnight. What you will have in the West is two things. You will either, uh, these activists and scholars uh, will either try to go for limits, which means, for example, you have a limit on nitrate, which you can emit into the environment as a farmer. And since uh, mineral fertilizer will contain nitrate, you will easily go over that limit. So this is kind of like an indirect pressure to, against conventional farming. And it, this is the cause of the current Dutch farmers' protests in the EU, because the EU has these these limits um, and uh, Dutch farming is very intensive even though it's like quite a small country they are feeding a lot of Europe basically because they have very efficient uh, intensive farming uh, and all those other European countries well it's kind of the problem if you have a union of a lot of countries and they are very different for all those countries who do not have that intensive farming it's easy to agree to some limits on nitrate because well for them it just looks good in the media and they will never reach those limits anyway. But, well, the Dutch do reach those limits, you know. So that's that's one thing in, develop, in developed countries. And the other things, the other thing would be to define like a percentage-based uh, area for organic farming, which has also happened in the EU. Uh, there's a EU strategy to turn 20% of the entire, well, farmland in the EU uh, to organic farming in the next few years. So again, this is not considering the market. It's just like a political directive, which people, because of some some lobbyists, have um, well implemented. But in the West, you will still have farmers associations and other lobbies who work against this. So you will not get 100%, which is good. 20% enforced, 20% is bad, but it's better than it's still better than 100%. Well, in developing countries, if you are such a lobbyist and you somehow manage to 
influence, for example, in Sri Lanka, the ruling family, so to speak. Um, you can go for crazy things like 100% overnight. And that was what really happened in Sri Lanka was, even if you were going to do this, farmers plan way ahead of time. They're planning two or three seasons ahead of time. They're, you know, right now we're into the fall. They've already planned for the winter. They're already working on spring and next year's, but because they're always working ahead. You, you know, your background is in biology. What kind of an effect to the practical farming is it when you just get a rule out of the clear blue sky that is immediately implemented like this? It's the worst case scenario, and it's absolutely impossible for the farmers because they've already got their crops in for not only this season, but probably next season. They're stored up for the winter, whatever the seasons are down there. This is a devastating thing to just spring on an industry like farming without any warning whatsoever, isn't it? Yes, of course, especially if you consider that Sri Lanka is a quite poor country. What happened in Sri Lanka was that large parts of the farmlands went unused even because farmers didn't know what to deal with it. Nearly a third of agricultural land uh, remained unused in 2021 and rice production fell by 20%. Yeah, that's what happens. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Yeah, I, mean, I don't think even the Soviets were able to do that that fast back in the day. Uh, Torben Holbin joining us. I'm going to keep working on his name. I'm going to get it right, I promise. Uh, he's got another example in the piece from neighboring to Sri Lanka over in India. We're going to talk about that real quick, continue to talk about the organic mission, kind of where the politics and the practical aren't matching up. Our friend Torben Holbe over in Germany will continue on her tell right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hort. See, I was practicing my German. Now I can't even say the name of my own show in English. But as our friend just pointed out, the language of the world is bad English. So we're all good here. I'm Andrew Donaldson. This is Hurt Tell. That's Torben Albe. That's our good friend from Germany joining us. We're having a little bit of a language problem, but we're going to get through it because he's a very sharp individual. We're talking about Sri Lanka, but you compared next door to Sri Lanka, of course, is India. India is one of the world powers. One of the reasons we have been paying attention to Sri Lanka is because China's involved, India's involved, America holds a bond on a lot of the debt. This is a lot of geopolitics. But you took one of the farming examples from neighboring India. Tell us about that and how it also proves that this organic mission of farming, this new definition of organic farming, this is probably going to fail just about everywhere they try it if they insist on doing this top-down kind of instant change thing instead of letting it, for lack of a better term, organically develop and the technology involved, right? Well, I would say even if you give it time, you will never reach 100% of organic farming. You will probably not even reach the 20% that uh, the European Union is trying to go for. 
because it's not efficient you know the, the idea that as i said a lot of experts and activists uh, were lobbying sri lanka for this decision uh, one example is actually a guy from washington his name is hans rudolf herren uh, he so hans rudolf herren of washington based millennium institute was one of these experts and, and another was vandana shiva from india so it's not all western experts but uh, still quite a lot they were they were first lobbying sri lanka to go for this change overnight and when that succeeded the international community of these activists applauded sri lanka for the decision of course well it didn't go well so their reaction was to say uh, of this direct direction of this pro-organic farming community was to say well it was just too sudden you know the farmers didn't have time to adapt even though well it was some of them who actually advised the government to go for this sudden change however so the farmers didn't have time to adapt and if you go for it more slowly then it will work out and you can just slowly but surely turn all farming farming organic uh, but you mentioned india and there is a state in india which is called sikkim and in that state they actually try to go for universal organic farming but in a slow and controlled way and it still turned out bad what happened in what happened in sikkim was so they began the organic mission as they called it in 2003 and then only 13 years later in 2016 they declared it to be fully organic and this was a law so all farmers were strictly forbidden to use synthetic pesticides and chemical fertilizers it didn't turn out well even though there had been many years to adapt because well it's a, in the same year 2016 some researchers declared sikkim food deficient they said that farming organic farming can only provide 30 30 percent of the population's needs and well the other 70 percent of food had to be imported so they started to import a non-organic food from neighboring indian states um which is a pattern which we will continue to see for example the same thing happened in bhutan which is another state in the region which also tried to go for 100 organic farming as soon as you go for that you will not have enough food the food price will rise and if you don't want people to starve especially in a, in a developing country you will have to import non-organic food so in the end you're just i don't know uh, sabotaging your own non-organic farming just to import organic uh, non-organic food from other countries which makes no sense actually yeah and eventually the uh, the government in sikkim saw it as a problem that the, the organic transition doesn't work and their their idea was to try and ban the import of non-organic food but uh luckily this led to protests you know people not only farmers i think also the retailers protested because because they knew that people wouldn't have been able to pay six times the price for the food not even middle class customers could have done that uh, so they protested and in the end the government of sikkim didn't ban the import of other food uh, of, of non-organic food this protest prevented starvation and rioting because in sri lanka we actually see rioting and we actually see the food shortage why why is there such a disconnect because farming is not like some esoteric debate club topic 
you're either producing food or you're not. This is a hard and fast kind of business of like you produce the food or you don't. You produce the animals, you don't. You produce the crops or you don't. And if you don't produce food, people are going to suffer. And yet there's still folks and activists that just despite this evidence in front of them will continue to push this, you know, no matter what, we need to do this right now because of reasons. And they'll say environmental reasons or political reasons or whatever the case may be. I don't understand how you can see human suffering and not go, okay, we need to adjust here. And yet we're seeing it like you just said, we saw it in India. We're seeing it in Sri Lanka. We're going to see it again and again. Why is there that disconnect between what's happening in reality and the, you know, the activist, intellectual, political, the folks that sit in places like Brussels that don't put their hands in the dirt? They just can't seem to put the two and two together or do they just don't care? Well, that's a classic problem of intellectualism, I would say. You have intellectuals in all areas who don't work. It's not just farming, you know, you have people whose only job is to criticize those who do work and if you then succeed in your criticism and uh, well some measures get taken some political measures the only thing you can do is well keep criticizing because it's your job you know <laughs> so <laughs> you you kind of have to keep criticizing until all the limits for nitrate and all the other stuff is so well, problematic, so, 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 so impossible to keep that entire systems collapse. So this, this class of intellectuals is a huge problem. Uh, another problem is, at least in Western systems, as I said, you still have farmers associations who kind of work against that, which is good. But in politics, this is all about compromise. You know, if they, you have one side who asks for some limits on nitrate, for example, and you have the other side which says, oh, let's have no limit. The normal political process will result in some compromise, which is in the middle. So you have some sort of limit. And then a few years later, there will be the same discussion again. So the, 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 the activists will ask for higher limits and then the farmers will say, oh no, let's keep the current limits. And then, well, another compromise, you know? Uh, this is a problem with politics that, um, it's not about who, who knows what's best because that would be the market. The, in the market, if farmers were just in the market, they would know for what cost they can produce how much food and uh, where to sell it, you know, and the customers would know how much they want to pay. But in politics, it's not about that. In politics, it's about, well, who has a lobby, who has power, and then you work on some sort of compromise between these people. What should we gather, though? Because like you said, the richer countries or richer individuals that want to do organic farming, you know, they're they're more than capable of going out, buying some farmland and doing this to their heart's content. What should we take away the fact that European countries and other countries, they seem to converge on a place like Sri Lanka that's already got problems and that are susceptible. And they're, let's just call it what it is. They're kind of being victimized here with this. They're getting guinea pigged on stuff like this. Just on a moral level, I find that to be very wrong, but also on a policy, if you really want to advocate for your thing, why would you try it in somewhere that's probably doomed to fail anyway because of the circumstances? This really feels like they took advantage of Sri Lanka on multiple levels here to me. Does it to you? Yes, to me, it feels like a sort of colonialism. I, I dislike the word because so many leftists use it, you know, for, for all sorts of things. <laughs> but, in, but in that case, it really it really is like that. You have well, you have wealthy, powerful people in the West, but in the West, they are making slow progress. Well, progress from their point of view. 
because in the West politics is more complex, more uh, more integrated, and other people also have a say. So instead, they go to to places where it's easier to influence politics. To a degree, they really believe in it. Of course, there's money in that. There's money in that too. If you, for example, produce organic fertilizer or something like that, then of course, if you can uh, influence political decisions so that you will sell more of it, you will make money. Uh, but but that's not all of it. I think they're really just convinced that this would be good for the world, and they make a living from telling people that it's, that it would be good for the world. So that they have to keep going. You know, they have to to keep it running. What's the uh, what's a practical thing we can talk to? Put your biology hat on for just a second. What's something practical here? Because really the problem with this is when you come in with a top-down regulatory thing like this organic farming, what we really need to do if we're worried about feeding people, which should be the first concern with farming, is how to unleash them, not how to entangle them in something that's not going to work. Is it a policy answer? Is it a public pressure answer? Is it highlighting this failure and dealing with it in a human way? What's the path forward here to try to get some traction on this issue in a productive way, do you think? It's a good question. I mean, in the, in the big picture, I think we as well, somewhat classical liberal people, we are always arguing against arguing against all the intellectuals and all those areas. But that's probably too big of a of a thing to address and it will take many years i guess to to go to the bottom of that problem and it will not help it will not help with the current debate so well the science is quite clear the science is clear plants will need nutrients and if you don't get those nutrients to them in an efficient way they will not grow as efficiently same for pesticides if your plants are always beset by some sort of, uh, I don't know, insect or whatever, that will take away from away from the total nutrition this plant can provide, and it might even kill the plant. You can also look at history. You can see how in the past, uh, from the same field, people were able to get far less uh, food than they can now. And uh if you look at european history you will a lot of you will see a lot of episodes where where there was starvation because uh, the harvest failed you know and these are things that we no longer have because of fertilizer and 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 because of pesticides because of progress technological technological progress this is one argument that i would make but to to some degree the whole culture of arguing is intellectual in itself you know what i mean it's always about well this notion that you could come up with with some solution to very complex pro problems that you could could come up with some solutions in some sort of abstract level where some smart people discuss while i think in truth the solution is with the people on the ground you know the people who who do the farming who, who have the practical experience but they are not intellectuals they will not join any discussions in any uh, proper way and even if they would it's it's not some sort of information that you that you could put into words you know there's a knowledge where to plant what and how to fertilize your your field and all of that it's not good for intellectual debate so what i would i would try to argue is to just leave it to the people who know how to do it that's what I, that's what i would at least try to do even though i think with the current culture of debate it will be difficult 
Leave it to the people that know what they're doing is such a simple concept, and yet we develop entire political ideologies to make sure we don't do that very thing. Isn't that amazing? Amer Humans are an amazing species because that's exactly what we do. Uh, our friend Torben Holbe uh, from over in Germany has been joining us. Fantastic conversation. We really appreciate your time today. Uh, again, the suffering in Sri Lanka is horrible. Please make sure you keep up to date with what's going on with those folks. My friend, until we hear from you again, let folks know what you have going on, where they can follow you. We're going to link to your piece in Town Hall. Please read the whole thing in its entirety. We always tell folks. Uh, but let folks know where they can follow you and what you have going on until we talk to you again. Sure. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. Yes, it's just Torben Halbe. <laughs> so, now that has been said so often, you can actually... Uh, Go for that. So my name is just Torben Halbe, which out with, without any spaces or anything. Um, and I, I recently joined a think tank in Berlin, which is called Ego Institute. You know, we want to go for the individualism. So it's quite new still, but the address is ego-institute.org. As of now, it's all still in German, but you can follow us there, sign up for the newspaper, and we are in the progress of translating it. It's just still a very young thing. Yep, and we can always Google Translate until then. Uh, Torben, my friend, very much appreciate your time. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Best of luck with the new Think Tank, and we'll speak again real soon, my friend. Thank you for your time. Same. Thank you, and goodbye. Thank you, sir. about her telling andrew donson you ever heard tell that old sing-songy rhyme it actually comes from england but don meredith the cowboys quarterback kind of made it famous in america if it's and butts for candies and nuts oh what a great christmas we'd have and there's other variations of it well that seems to be the version that victor david hansen's working off of and writing a piece i'm not going to read the whole piece it's an american greatness it's a long list of the usual stuff when it comes to donald trump and the forthcoming election but his last paragraph caught my attention and I wanted to draw brief attention to it. He said, yet if the Republicans advance a coherent national plan of action to restore a pre-Biden America, if Donald Trump will focus positively on national issues and not take the bait to obsess on the wrongs done to him, and if grassroots conservatives this time around prepare to preemptive massive left-wing vote harassing, they will achieve their blowout, meaning the midterms. But that's a lot of ifs. And meanwhile, time grows short. Now read his whole piece decide for yourself. I found it to be a long list of things that he says or so that are not so, but you can make up your own mind on that. But here's my rule of thumb. A uh, supervisor I had years and years ago in the military told me anything more than two ifs is not a plan. That's a prayer and it's not going to work out well for you. And this is a whole lot of ifs. 
the Republicans do not have a national plan of actions that's coherent because they can't because they don't know the status of Donald Trump for the 2024 election yet. And the midterm election is mostly about Biden's poor uh, approval numbers. Problem is, those are coming up. And if the economy gets a little bit better, they don't really have a coherent message other than anti-Biden. And that may not be enough. Now, I still think they get the House. The Senate's looking pretty sketchy, but we'll talk about that some other time. His second point is even more ludicrous. Donald Trump will focus positively on national issues and not take the bait on obsessing wrongs done with him. I'm not sure. Victor David Hansen is a very smart man. His history books are fantastic. This is nonsense. You've seen what he's been doing for the last six years. You saw what he did in the Georgia recall. You've seen what he's doing in these midterms. He's going to do the same thing in 2024. We know who Donald Trump is. He's not going to change. He's completely obsessed over the wrongs done for him because he's completely about him. That's not going to change, and you can wish it and if it and but it all you want to. The reality is very much the same. So if our Republican friends are going to insist on ifs and buts getting them to their Merry Christmas, they're going to be in for a disappointment because ifs and buts are not a plan. It's definitely not an electoral plan. And the voters are coming in November. And they're going to judge you accordingly. And by the way, even if you get the House in two years, you better have some accomplishments because now you're in charge. People will judge you accordingly. And all the ifs and buts in the world aren't going to stave off a list of not having any accomplishments. More her tell right after this. Right to hurt tell. We always try to end on an uplifting note. This one's from overseas. Let's go to Euronews.com. Climbing a 4,000 meter mountain is no easy feat, but for intrepid adventurer Matt Carpenter, it's more than just a challenge. It's a chance to prove the brain injury can't stop him and raise money for charity that helped save his life. In September, the data too is trekking North Africa's highest peak, Mount Tubacol, in Morocco. It may be Tubacol. I don't know. I'm probably mispronouncing this. Very sorry. I mispronounced it to double your money back for this episode. Hikers summit the most majestic peak in the rugged Atlas Mountain Range, ascending the 4,167 meters above sea level. I can't do the math. That's real, real high, even in the proper measurements and not the metric system. Quote, it's easily to show how people on the same journey as mine, that mountain-sized challenges are achievable, Matt said. Matt is fundraising for Paul. P-A-U-L, that's an acronym for Brain Recovery, a British charity providing support, guidance, and education to people impacted by acquiring brain injury. Alongside the trek, he is also running his first ever half marathon. On top of that, being the overachiever that he is, for every 10 pounds raised, he will take a custard pie to the face. Boy, that's suffering. I like that idea. It feels brilliant to be given back, he says, but it's been a long run to Mount Tubacol. In 2010, Matt was admitted to the hospital for suffering a concussion, but a routine CT scan delivered an all-clear. For eight years, the Hall local lived a normal, busy life. He regularly fundraised for charity, worked a job at a homeless shelter, and fathered kids. In 2018, he was struck by a sudden seizure after doctors ordered another CT scan. They discovered a tumor. The malignant lump is visible on his 2010 scan, but the doctors missed it. By the time it was discovered, it had grown the size of a Cadbury cream egg, it knocked him for six. He'd been there all the time. I thought there's a, been a thing in my brain getting bigger and bigger, and it was causing problems. So after emergency neurosurgery, Matt sprung back into fundraising. He advised his doctors. He completed a brutal, tough mutter 
obstacle race. Those things are brutal. That's well done. And a 10K charity race. In hindsight, he admits he was in denial about his medical prognosis, but the tumor returned. He was forced to accept he needed help. Despite undertaking grueling courses of chemotherapy and radiotherapy, Matt still managed to complete the Yorkshire three-peak challenge in bagged Scaffold Pike, English highest mountain. The relentless hospitalizations battered his mental health, but the chemo seemed to work. So far, it seems like the little sucker is gone, but there's probably traces of it somewhere in my brain. He's always loved traveling. He's done um, animal work, and he's fundraising to do this Mount Tuck Bowl. I'm going to pronounce that multiple ways until I get it right. It's mostly about raising money for charity, but personally cathartic. This is my time. The idea is to get around and shout, F you brain tumor. He laughs. That'll feel pretty good. More power to him. I hope he does. Somebody who's had to recover from a TBI before, I wish you well. Well done, my friend. If you want to donate to him, it'll be in the show notes. We'll have links to his page. That'll do it for this Monday edition of Hertel. Thank you so much for being with us. Got an exciting week of guests lined up. No shortage of news stories that need turned down. You can reach out, though. You got a question, comment, something you want us to cover? We've done whole shows just based on your feedback and things you wanted to talk about at Show on gmail.com. If you want to email us at Show on the Twitter, you can DM us or send an open question there. Of course, my Twitter handle, for Foot Fire, is on the screen, as is our guest. Make sure you're following them. So until we do this again tomorrow, we will be back for more Hertel. Make sure you check out the Hertel podcast. Eric Garcia is on it again inside and on the floor of the U.S. Senate. Great stuff. Don't miss it. Wherever you and yours are, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. We will talk to you again next time for more Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.